Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're tuned into Future City. On this show, we've changed the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. We've covered everything from tiny homes to Confederate monuments to vocational schools. And you can find all these episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. On today's show, music has long been used as protests. Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Joan Baez, John Lennon and CCR and so many others use their music as a way to protest the Vietnam War. They wrote songs that addressed systemic injustices and sought to unite people through the power of their music. Today, many musicians are doing the same. Today on the show, we're looking at the arts, arts as activism. And we'll be talking with musicians and visual artists about how their art is intertwined with their activism. On Future City, we've already covered the art scene here in Baltimore, and it is thriving. It's a powerful, powerful scene, and you can listen to that episode online. But today, we're bringing it a little bit broader, and we'll be expanding our discussions, looking specifically at the role of the arts in protests and activism. And to kick off the show, we're discussing the amazing ORCIDS program, which I love that name, ORCIDS, at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. That music you just heard is the talented young musicians who are part of the program, Orchids. The experience these kids have with music is literally changing their lives. And to learn more about how this all works, we're joined today by Camille Delaney McNeil, who's a director of programs, and Kay Shepard, who's a senior program manager. Camille, Kay, it is great to have you guys on board. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Wes. We're excited. We're excited to be here, Wes. Well, it's, it's my joy, but, but, but Camille, why don't we start with you? Can you tell me a little bit about the program, how it works, and, and when it all got started? In 2008, our wonderful music director, Marin Alsop, had the spark of an idea that, you know, we should be able to use the leverage and the power of the Baltimore Symphony and the arts in general um, to make connections to the community, to really influence what's going on around and, and bring everyone in to this arts culture, this art institution. And so in 2008, she gave her seed money from the MacArthur Genius Grant to fund this program, Kids, which was inspired by the El Sistema movement that was happening in Venezuela with uh, Dr. Jose Abreu that really took this notion that music can be used for social change. And before a kid could get a gun in their hand, and this is happening in Venezuela, but before a kid could get a gun in their hand, they could get an instrument first. 
So that that was kind of the the spark, I guess. And, you know, with the generous support of our founding donors as well, Bob Meyerhoff and Rita Becker, you know, ORCID started with a cohort of 30 kids, several of whom are still with us today. Ten years later, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary earlier in May, um, has grown to serve over 1,300 students. And we do this through during-the-day music programs, and we also do this with after-school programming that really matches our partnership with Baltimore City Schools. It goes from very you know tight engagement to really enriched, flourishing after-school programming, which means students are getting instrumental lessons, group lessons with teachers that are performing musicians, active musicians, and music educators. They're working in ensembles. And then we also are able to provide things like meals for our kids, you know, a steady, consistent snack and supper each day that they're with us, Um, and as well as academic support. You know, one of the things that people might assume (laughs) thinking that we're a music program is like, well, you're just about music. That's all you're going to do. But when you're adding in this social change component, which we adopt very thoroughly, we're looking at our children holistically. So how are they doing academically? How are they doing emotionally? How are they doing on their instrument? So, so, so Kay, I want to bring you in and to talk a little bit about what is the role of a senior program manager and what was your introduction into ORCIDS? So as senior program manager, my job entails exactly what Camille was just talking about. And I have to deal um, and build relationships with the schools, with the communities, with the families that we're going to be engaging. So I go in and I have to recruit our students um, from classes when we work with these schools. We're actually looking at schools in East Baltimore and all over Baltimore, all over the map to see who has been um, not getting the service that we think um, should be afforded to those communities and those students. And putting our foot in there, putting our stamp in there, and bringing the community back around, not just the BSO, but also community musicians that we hire, um, people that are from Baltimore and are working in Baltimore and are gigging in Baltimore and coming and putting them in front of those, those students as well. It's fascinating because when you talk about neglected communities, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. thing, and, and communities that have been under-resourced, oftentimes the conversation about what neglect means doesn't always venture into the arts, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about, well, you know, we talk about food insecurity. We talk mm-hmm. about housing insecurity, mm-hmm. all these kind of mm-hmm. things. But, but your argument is that musical and artistic insecurity is just as dangerous as any of the other ones. Just if not more dangerous. We know the history in this country um, has been, they've been toying with the arts and arts ed- in education. And um, just recently, they've been adopting it back as far as um, putting it as part of, you know, you heard about STEM, now it's STEAM. Mm-hmm. And we're bringing arts back in there. But the argument in any other, if you look at any other European context or society, they're studying the arts just and languages and everything else just as much as they're studying any ac- academic other academic subject. I'm sorry. Um, and so we try to... Um, Im- Implore our students through this music program that, yeah, by studying music, you're studying math, you're studying language arts, you're studying science, you're studying history. Um, You're getting to know these things and you're getting to know yourselves through the context of this work and having an instrument in your hands. So not only are we going in for the with the premise of 
classical music and having traditional instruments in their hands, but we're listening to the students and trying mm. to figure out what it is that they actually need to be engaged in this program and want to come here and want to be here. And so through that, we were able to start our brass band, um, and I can talk about that later, but that is the thing we saw from the kids that really you know, boiled them. They wanted to compose. They wanted to get their voices out there. And I was like, what better way to do that? But it's not, it's it's juxtaposition, right? You have classical music, all music, classical music, but then what is coming out of these students and how does that sound and what can we do with that? And so by merging the two of those together, we're able to revitalize a lot of energy around Booker T. And now they're going out as a performing ensemble for our kids from Booker T and people are glad to wear, you know, the Booker T staff is glad to wear that on their backs and promote the kids and say, hey, go see our kids perform down at the aquarium. Go see our kids perform at the Monument Lighting. And I, and I, I while well, I want to get back to your brass band, because I got to tell you, I saw the brass band performing with Wynton Marcellus and Wendell mm. Pierce before. And let me tell you, boy, I mean, they, they, <laughs> they, they went in. It yeah. was, it was a beautiful, beautiful yeah. night. They did a beautiful job. But, okay. but before I even come back to that, actually, mm-hmm. Camille, I want to ask you a quick question. Um, Dr. King once uh, made a statement where he said, every one of us can be great because every one of us can serve. Mm. And what he was saying by that is that, you know, that everyone is going to have their role to play. Everyone has a, a place when it comes to service, mm-hmm. but everyone's role is going to look a little bit different. By what you're doing with ORCIDS, this is just simply about saying that, you know, you can, you can speak your mind through an instrument. You can, you can create a change through your voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can actually take creativity and use it to move masses. Mm-hmm. When you think about the work that you guys are doing, what are some of the things and some of the things that you've seen in your time that you've been most proud of when it comes to the way your students have used their gifts for social activism? Oh, I mean, there there's so many things, but as as I was listening to Kay and, and recalling in my mind those examples, when the kids have the instruments in their hand, and specifically through creative composition, the reason why this is such a big part of our program is because it is a direct link from the student voice to what's presented, to the public, to the community, to whomever. Mm. Ideas and things that are troubling them, that are inspiring them, that are moving them, is something that we're able to create this catalyst, this pathway that they can then say, you need to listen to me. Here's what I have to say. And because it's an art form, the receptivity to that is so much larger than maybe a kid yelling down the street or maybe holding even a picket sign. Who knows? But, you know, in the context of a safe, like, oh, we're in a performance environment. We, we want to hear these kids doing something positive. Well, here's something positive with message. Mm. What we can do as the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra or kids program is give them the platforms that is accessible to so many different types of people and so many different levels of influence, whether you're, you know, on the BSO stage, whether you're traveling to Europe, which two of our students have done, um, or, you know, whether we're in Lockerman Bundy Gym or Marianne Winterling Auditorium, we're able to help them communicate that message. We've been talking with uh, Camille Delaney McNeil, who's a director of programs, and Kay Shepard, who is a senior program manager of the Baltimore City Orchestra or Kids program. You all are amazing, and we are so thankful for the work that you do. So bless you, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you.
Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. If you're just tuning in, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. Today on the show, we've been talking about arts activism, how local artists are innovating and creating as a form of advocacy and protest. We're joined over the phone now by Paul Rucker, a visual artist, composer, and musician who combines media, live performance, sound, original compositions, and visual art. His largest installation to date is called Rewind, and it garnered praise from Baltimore Magazine, awarding Paul the Best Artist of 2015. Paul, thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me. In, in a relatively short period of time, you have made such an impact on the scene here in Baltimore. So what, what initially drew you to the arts? I think being a creative is one of the best jobs, but it's not a typical job you can apply for um, to be an artist. Uh, there are no real um, openings just to be an artist. Mm. And that's one of these jobs you have to create on your own. Be able to do art is a, is a daunting task, but when you're able to do it, it's, it's great. And um, I think the pure place art comes from, you know, you want to create things, you want to express yourself, you want to bring attention to past, you want to bring uh, attention to things in a way so you can promote empathy and understanding. The turning point for me was after the, the L.A. uprising, after Rodney King was uh, beaten, that was on my 24th birthday, and after that I felt like I wanted to do something with art that meant something, so I created artwork and music around the Tuskegee experiment, uh, created work around uh, people that were killed during civil rights, more obscure people that we don't know about, and uh, and more recently about the impact and the long-term legacy of slavery, which includes the Ku Klux Klan. So when you have, when you have an ability to be able to tell that and share that story with people, you know, cause, because for a lot of people, this is not something that they really delve that deeply into when trying to understand current conditions. Uh, they will look at the current prison industrial complex and just think that that was a natural evolution without with really what your art is saying. Actually, no, it was a very intentional processes that was put into place. How then do you use that art to be able to help explain that to people? And what do you want them to feel when they actually are going in and then taking in your, uh, you're taking in your work. There's a couple of things that I do in the art process in my shows. And for the show Rewind, is a 30-page newspaper that accompanies the show. And it gives facts, factual information about real American history. My recent show, Storm in the Time of Shelter, included a 20-page full-color newspaper, which talked about the history of the Klan. It let people know that the Klan in the 1920s had more than 5 million members. That was 5% of the U.S. population at the time. Mm. Same population of New York City, 5 million members. And it lets you know that the Plan Row factory in the Buckhead neighborhood of Georgia was so busy, and there was such a demand for robes, they had to become a 24-hour factory. 
and they kept 20,000 robes on hand at all times. And I get this information from my research. And again, this information was not taught in school. And I'm trying to just change the narrative, the change the narrative that, you know, black people are lazy, black people are not as smart, black people, just all these false narratives that are still resonating with us today. And um, so that's a large part of my work as well, because I collect uh, pro-slavery books as well as lynching postcards, shackles for adults as well as children, and other literature that uh, wants to try to change history and who contributed what and who did nothing. So when you're thinking about your work, I mean, you're, you're, you're asking people to not just be in, informed, but frankly, you're asking people to be uncomfortable, uh, which is a good and a powerful thing, that an artist is, is actually, you're, you're inviting people to come in and for a moment feel uncomfortable. How then have you thought about the response to your art, and how is the how is the even the initial response to your art? Uh, how have you thought about your art going forward, considering that? Oh, the response to my art is wide range. Uh, I think for me, growing up in the South, I grew up in South Carolina, and I would see Klan rallies, and you have this imagery in your head growing up, and you wonder why this imagery holds power over you in your mind and your imagination and the way you do things every day. So. For me, I immerse myself into learning about something, even reappropriating objects and ideas and forms in order to not have them have power over me. And I think the lack of our real history being taught has created a dynamic to where symbols and objects have power over us as a society. It's like the elephant in the room. If you don't address the elephant in the room, which we as a country have not addressed the elephant in the room. It can be used as a tool to divide, but nothing I create in the gallery is more disturbing than the things that are happening outside the walls of the gallery and of, of the buildings where I present shows. Well, Paul Rucker, visual artist, composer, musician, and activist. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much for your time and your work. Thank you for Take yours. Care. So joining us now is Devin Allen. He's an award-winning photographer, and his photos have graced the cover of Time Magazine, multiple art exhibitions, and he's also the author of the best-selling book, A Beautiful Ghetto. He's also the recipient of the inaugural Gordon Parks Foundation Fellowship. This is a very big deal, guys. And he is the creator of Through Their Eyes Project that helps to train students in photography. In full disclosure, I have known and admired Devin for a while. Devin is a friend, and it is an absolute joy to have him on the show. Devin, thank you for being here, man. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's absolutely our pleasure. And so take us back to that time after, after the death of Mike Brown. Mike Brown is murdered out in Ferguson. Uh, what, what, is a, what was it about that moment and that time that this, that this combination of your activism and this gift of photography ended up merging. Yes, um, growing up in Baltimore, I've been subjected to police brutality. Um, if anyone's familiar with Sean Gamble's st story, who was murdered, we went to high school together. He was a good friend of mine. And um, I always felt like I didn't have a voice, I didn't have any power, but finding photography gave me a certain type of confidence that I didn't have before. So when Mike Brown passed, I remember uh, some of my friends saying they was going to a protest. And a couple 
weeks before that, I documented um, a protest uh, for Palestine for, for a friend of mine. And I didn't understand or knew how, I, you know, I don't know how to document these things. He was like, you just have a good eye. I need you to come capture this for me. And that's when I really saw people marching. And that was like, and I, when I posted the pictures, so many people were touched by them. And so I was, I want to do the same thing for Mike Brown. This is how I can help. I wanted to show that Baltimore was standing with Ferguson. So I went out and documented that. After the protest stopped, you know, I went silent. I didn't know I was doing activism at that time. So when Freddie Gray came, I knew no one can tell that story better than me because I, me and Freddie Gray have mutual friends. I know the streets like the back of my hand, and I just felt obligated. You know, as an artist, I feel like it's very important to reflect your times and what is happening around you. And you end up taking a picture that ends up on the cover of Time magazine. Yes. Tell us about that story. Um, yeah, we it was peaceful. You know, I was out for a while. You know, like a lot of people talk about the uprising was three days to a lot of people, four days. But before Freddie Gray passed away, we was already marching. I was already shooting. Actually, my first post was uh, shot down City Hall, and I said I'm dedicating my Instagram to Freddie Gray. You know, I, I said I was going to go to every march, as many meetings as I can get, you know, just because I had uh, around like 10K following, which is pretty much a lot for someone, you know, just beginning photography, and I wanted to use my platform, you know, to get the work out. And the time cover, you know, I didn't really think nothing of it. You know, it was a beautiful day. I never seen, it was the biggest march that I ever attended, you know, to this day. We started off at Gilmore Homes, made our way to City Hall. And I remember uh, a friend of, friend of Freddie Gray, um, Rico, um, who wanted to, you know, confront the police at, because they were, all the police were stationed at Camden Yards. And um, Rico Pat was murdered back in 2016. So, you know, uh, rest in peace to him. You know, when I look at the photos from that day, he was just like, he led led with a, with a certain type of like, I can't really explain it, but it was so powerful, but so peaceful at the same time. Because he, when he went there, a lot of people were, you know, throwing stuff at the police and everything else. And Rico was just like, no, I want them to feel and hear my pain as he talked on the blowhorn. And, you know, he was very peaceful. But it was just so many people. So I made my way around Camden Yards and people shut down the uh, the highway that's coming through uh, Cam- towards Camden Yards and you have the bars and everything else. As we were protesting peacefully, some people, you know, people weren't just protesting for Freddie Gray. You had everybody from hoods on the head. You know, it's for everybody that have been, you know, from police brutality yep. to Trayvon Martin. So you had everybody there with a different me- message. And... I remember the drunk Orioles fans and baseball fans throwing peanuts and, you know, hot dogs and stuff at us and laughing about it. A lot of people don't know that. And that's what actually ignited everything on that Saturday. And I just kept shooting, kept shooting, you know, and we made our way and they started destroying the police cars, you know. So I just got up in there. I wasn't even thinking, you know, like I was just glass flying everywhere. I'm just shooting everything you know i wanted to capture everything even if some you had younger generations you know you, you gotta let a lot of people don't understand baltimore also where growing up for me we didn't really interact with people outside our culture until i got older you know because in west baltimore is you know it's predominantly black so you only interact with your community in which you're around so a lot of these kids haven't been subjected to other cultures yet they haven't even really even left the neighborhood you know, further some I have friends that never left West Baltimore. Further they went is East Baltimore. Yeah. And so you're you're talking about kids sixteen, seventeen marching for Freddie Gray. Um, 
trying to get their voices heard, but then they're met with getting called monkeys in the N-word. So you have that instant fear because that's a term of endearment to them. When they say the N-word, it's like my brother, my friend. So to hear that coming from white lips for the first time is just like enraging. Mm-hmm. And I want people to really understand that what, that's what led to everything. So I just remember they were destroying the police cars. We didn't know that the police had already put on their riot gear and had boxed us in downtown. And then I remember the police running almost running me over and I remember hopping over the fence and you know getting out of the way and just kept shooting but I, as I was shooting I was literally standing on ground zero uploading so I my f- camera had Wi-Fi so I shot everything in black and white so I didn't have to worry about editing anything I would Wi-Fi it to my phone and I would post as I was on the ground so I was posting a lot of feed mm. and so you then take this this moment this shot but then you've used it now to really tell a much bigger, broader story. And the question that I have then is, what is it about photography that can help tell a story that sometimes even words can't? Yes, photography is a unique medium and is very vital to the movement and storytelling. Photography, because you can read words, but when you can see it and visually digest it mentally, along with words, it packs a bigger punch. You know, a lot. I watched this uh, film called Through the Lens Darkly because around that time, I still was learning photography. I didn't understand what I was doing. I just, it just was my first, I just was going with it. I just, you know, even when I got the time cover, people were like, why are you still shooting? I'm like, why not? Mm. I need to tell the entire story. I remember shooting them being on the phone with time when they first called me. I hung up on them multiple times because they called me from a block number. I thought it was either a bill collector <laughs> or I made a, I may have, may have upset someone, a girl ain't something. <laughs> it, and and it, I didn't think nothing of it. You know, like they gave me the time with a full spread. I didn't even know until the morning later. You know, they, they told me it was a possibility. But with photography, it put me in a space where now I have to study it. You know, and I've been studying. So watching the film through, through the lens darkly, a lot of people don't know how powerful photography really is. It was vital in creating the narrative around the black experience around slavery time. Mm. So you're talking about slaves being photographed back then. Do you know um people being hung and photographed. Um people photographing black people people and creating these stereotypes that we all love watermelon and they take pictures with a black man eating a larger than life watermelon. So photography was one of the essential and vital tools to c- creating the stigmas around black people and a lot of people don't know that. Mm. And through the lens darkly talks about that. And a lot of people know, like, the most photographed person is Frederick Douglass. He understood the power in seeing for future people to see in his times, his a black man suited up, an educated black man, you know, because you can't deny that. Sometimes words, you can write things and you can lie, but photography is up to the viewers. Yes. Perception, how you digest that mentally. But you cannot deny seeing Frederick Douglass in the suit in those times. It's powerful. But describing it, but then seeing it on a photograph, you can't deny that. That's right. How the images will sear into yes. a person's soul. Yes. So people can understand Freddie Gray a little bit more. This is what Freddie Gray, literally, when he walked out his front door, this is what he saw every day. This is what I see every day, you know, when I'm wandering around or I'm hanging out with my friends. Devin Allen, award-winning photographer. This has been a blessing, man. Thank you so much oh, for thank joining you. today. Thank my you. My God. Thank you, man. I'm Wes Moore, and you've been listening to Future City. Coming up, we'll hear some of the stirring music of Judah Adashi, 
a composer that defies genres, merging classical with rap, soul, and pop to create pieces that evoke strong emotions surrounding important issues. We'll speak with Judah about some of his pieces and learn more about the power of music in creating empathy. Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and this is Future City. So today on the show, we've been exploring arts activism and the vital role of music and visual arts in creating space for dialogue and debate. Joining us now, I'm honored to have Judah Adashi, who's an extremely accomplished composer. He is the founder and artistic director of the Evolution Contemporary Music Series, which has made Baltimore a destination for extraordinary new music and musicians since 2005. Dr. Adashi is also the founder and artistic director of Rise Be More, an annual concert marking the anniversary of Freddie Gray's 2015 death while in Baltimore police custody. He's also a member of the composition and music theory faculty at the Peabody Institute of the Johns Hopkins University. Judah, it is such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Wes, thank you so much. It's, uh, you're someone who I find very inspiring, so I appreciate you. Well, and vice versa, man, vice versa. And, and I love your work, and, and I'm excited for our listeners to be able to hear some of your music. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this field? Absolutely. Um, it's been, uh, as I'm sure you can relate in your own path, it's, it's been a journey to kind of have my artistic life intersect with everything else that I care about. Mm-hmm. So um, music was always there. I grew up, I actually grew up here, so I grew up uh, taking piano lessons at the Peabody Preparatory, and, and music was always a part of my life. But it was only, I think, you know, uh, I moved back to, I, I spent most of my life here in Baltimore, and then... And really, as I've come back here as an adult, I think I started to see how music, you used the term uh, in your intro, music can create a space. And I think I started to see how music and art in general can create a space for, uh, for conversation, for empathy, for all these things uh, in ways that, that maybe simply conversation, you know, another symposium, another panel can't do. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like that's... that's uh, that's a power that, that we have as musicians. That's something we can use in these times to create uh, to create conversation, to create space, to create common feeling. So let's let's delve into that a little deeper and mm-hmm. let's play a little bit of Dear Baltimore okay. for our listeners. But before we play it, can you can you set it up for our listeners? I can. Um, I think this is this is a good example in a way of, of some of the things we're talking about. So the music you'll hear is music I had already written. I wrote this big piece called Rise, um, which uh, kind of it basically takes a, that takes a more sweeping look beyond Baltimore. It takes a look at um, America's civil rights journey all the way from Selma to Ferguson. Um, I co-wrote it with a, a poet named Tamika Cage Conley, and we had these sort of six vignettes looking at this national journey. Uh, and the day that that piece premiered, April 19th, 2015, was the day that Freddie Gray 
died in police custody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of immediately brought this national story. You know, uh, I think the program note for the piece said, uh, America's civil rights journey from Selma to Ferguson and beyond, and beyond was Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, mu- the music you hear, uh, which is me playing the piano, is the first, um, with a, also with a horn player named Chris Shiley, you hear uh, the opening invocation of that piece, Rise, the speaking you hear, which is the real heart of this piece, Dear Baltimore, was made just last year, or actually, no, this this past year. Uh, the voice and the words are those of Erica Bridgeford, one of the co-organizers of Baltimore Ceasefire, and um, honestly, one, one of the people that inspires me most in in this city, one of the organizations that inspires me most. So I, I basically just said to her, you know, I, I want to highlight... Um, at one of my Rise Be More events, I want to highlight you and what you're doing. Uh, I don't see any anything better being done than what you're doing. It's, it really uh, is changing the game on the ground more than anything else I've seen. Um, and I said, you can do anything you want. Here's some music, you know, uh, write some words to go with it, um, however you see fit. And she wrote a letter, uh, kind of a love letter to Baltimore called Dear Baltimore. So the music was there as of 2015, the poem and the performance by Erica Bridgeford, which I should add she did in one take, uh, <laughs> is what you'll, you know, that's the, the foregrounded element in the piece. I love it. Let's take a listen. Dear Baltimore, let's talk about your strength. Let's talk about how you rise. When everybody thinks you're down for the count, let's talk about how you rise. Rise like that time my brother was on crack and my parents would search the streets looking for him. And sometimes he would run. But that one time, one time I found him and he almost ran and I begged him not to and I reminded him that I'd been at my bottom too. That I'd seen the crevices of my gutter too. And having come up out of it, there was no way I was going to leave him. Rise like how he promised me he would meet me later that afternoon and let me take him to our parents. Rise like how I promised him I'd be standing on that corner until he returned. And he left to go get that last hit. Rise like the joy in my soul when I saw his frail, cracked, devoured body coming over. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's all her, and it's all you know that uh, it's hard to think of a, a person who better encapsulates the uh, the heart of this city. Yes, and mm-hmm. the fact that she opens it up with Baltimore. Let's talk about your strength, mm-hmm. not not the deficiencies, not the frailties. Let's talk about your strength and being willing in the next breath to address personal pain and vulnerability, and that yeah. those things can go hand in hand, but they don't have to be painted. Uh, you know, in a one-dimensional way, as I think they, they often are, uh, just by, you know, the nature of how kind of our national media works. Uh, even during the uprising, you think back, you know, it was this one-dimensional picture, this idea of, you know, one one CVS burning. It wasn't showing... On loop. Yeah, it was this this sort of B-roll that, that <laughs> could not have um, reduced our city more. Uh, and honestly, the same way that, uh, you know, our city is reduced when... Monday night football is on, and the only shot is of the Inner Harbor. You know that's 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 not Baltimore. And I think I think 
art gives you this opportunity to kind of uh, to broaden that that understanding of what this place is yeah. and what it can be. Another piece that I was really taken by uh, was Last Words, uh, the story of a young man named Khalif Browder, uh, who was a minor when he was arrested for allegedly stealing a bag. Uh, doesn't have the $500 to pay for bail, uh, ends up sitting in prison not for a night, not for a week, not for months, but literally for years, uh, half of his time in prison in solitary confinement, uh, tries to kill himself multiple times while he is in prison. And again, he's a minor when all of this is happening. Uh, finally, he is acquitted because they never found any evidence of his once he finally gets to trial. And months after he leaves prison, he kills himself. Uh, the story behind Khalif Browder is heartbreaking on so many different levels. But you figure out a way of being able to tell his story, his his power, uh, in this piece called Last Words. What, what, what was the thinking behind this? Even just hearing you kind of go through the story is, you know, it's affecting. Uh, and I know you have uh, Khalif Browder's from the Bronx. I know you have... Yeah. Uh, that's one of your other cities. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, it's important to, to say, especially since we're on radio, you know, I'm somebody who grew up, you know, quite privileged in Baltimore, white kid. Uh, this this is a story that is, uh, you know, I mean, this this could not be more foreign to my personal experience. And I think that requires a lot of thought about you know, why do I want to share this story in any way? Is it mine to share in any way? Um, and a part of my answer to that is that last words is, you know, it's none of my, it's my music, but it's none of, it's all the words of uh, Khalif Browder and his mother, Benita Browder. Um, again, it's that idea of kind of creating a scaffolding for a story to be told, not, not, same thing with, with Erica on uh, Invocation Dear Baltimore. It's not, it's not my story to tell, but if I can have a, a place in, uh, in lifting it up, that's meaningful to me, and hopefully has some impact. This is not an unusual story. This idea of being incarcerated, uh, being incarcerated uh, without having committed a crime, and still spending however much damaging time in you know in a place like Rikers Island, uh, you know, it connects up with a story to me like like Freddie Gray's, which is that you know we we see this the uh, we see the abrupt violence of someone, you know, a black man or a black woman, a black person being gunned down by police. We don't we don't see the years and years of, of the slow death. Mm -hmm. We don't see that. I think uh, Elijah Cummings will often talk about that. He will always, he will, you know, when he speaks about Freddie Gray, he'll say, did you, did you see Freddie Gray when he was alive? Did you see him? And uh, I think, you know, we don't see that. And we didn't see Khalif uh, Browder he was essentially being slowly killed for all this this time. The suicide is the is the culminating act that we hear about, but this this is someone who was basically being brutalized mentally and physically over, you know, this this slow uh, hidden death. And I think that just that really stayed with me. And I try I tried to find whatever way into empathizing with it that I could. I actually did go up. Um, I went up to the Bronx and kind of retraced some of his steps uh, the last day before he was picked up, mm. which was the beginning. Uh, I mean, you know, his life was 
you know, very complicated already, but for all intents and purposes, it was not what it was about to become when he was picked up for doing something that that he was ultimately acquitted of, and his life changed forever that day. And he, you know, he just, he literally made his way, you know, slowly from, uh, I think, 181st Street to, you know, the, the courthouse, and then eventually to Rikers, and he was never the same. Let's take a listen to the last words. When he came out, he was not the same. Not the same. It was too much baggage he brought from Rikers with him. It was too much baggage. The memory of beatings, starvation. There was times when he wasn't even allowed to take a shower. Khalif, he was angry. He started getting real paranoid. He was not the same. You listen to those words and the, and the beautiful symphony behind it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's haunting. It's, it's hearing his mother tell this story while you're almost hearing Khalif in the background saying, Mama, I can't take this anymore. Which is what his mother said. That's the last thing she, he said to her the night before he took his own life. He said that to her. So those are his words. And then, yeah, you're hearing, you're hearing a mother. You're hearing Benita Browder. That's... Uh, uh, courtesy of the Marshall Project, which uh, d- did this beautiful has this beautiful ongoing project called uh, We Are Witnesses, where they make these videos of uh, people who have borne witness to loss due to mass incarceration. Um, and she, you know, gave this beautiful. She fought so hard for her son, yeah. uh, and then she passed away. Um, you know, it it seems quite likely of a broken heart, quite literally. And um, yeah, the piece I actually dedicated the piece to her memory because I feel like. There's so many mothers like that. There's yeah. so many parents like that. And I, I should also uh, credit the singer there. That's Matthew Robinson, uh, who is in Howard University's uh, amazing group, Afro Blue. Mm. And he's someone I've collaborated with since uh, since I wrote Rise. But yeah, I, I, I'm i really touched. You know, it's interesting. You said that it was beautiful. And that's that's the strange thing also with creating music about something like this is... I mean, are you are you uh, you have to be careful in a way that you're not you're not you're not glorifying. You're not uh, making beauty out of uh, out of you know the ugliness that that uh, and the the damage that happens in our world. Yeah. Um, but I think I think what I the beauty I think is in Khalif Browder, the person. This is an extraordinary human being, uh, and in his mother, extraordinary people. So I, I wanna I want. Uh, to leave our listeners with one more piece, and it's called uh, The Beauty of the Protest, which in many ways, this piece almost seems to encapsulate your entire ethos of how you even think about art and activism. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about this piece? That's very, very nice of you to say that uh, actually we did uh, a program. We've we've toured a little bit with a program called The Beauty of the Protest that includes a lot of these pieces. So you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, broadly speaking, it, it is uh, the death of Freddie Gray in Baltimore police custody, but it was specifically sparked by the work of Devin Allen, who you had on the show uh, earlier today. Um, 
just this extraordinary, uh, visionary Baltimore photographer uh, and storyteller. He told the story of the Baltimore uprising. As far as I'm concerned, that's the best. There is no better uh, counter narrative to the burning CVS on CNN than Devin Allen's images. And that rocketed him to some national renown by his work winding up on the cover of Time magazine uh, and juxtaposing the 2015 uprising with the 68 riots. Um, uh, But I think... Um, Devin had, I mean, there's so many of his, of his images that stay with me, but there's one in particular, uh, of someone wrapped in the the American flag Mm -hmm. and it has the names of black men and women, uh, killed by police. And it just, uh, that, that image became indelible in my mind. And then, um, the word, the title comes from Devin as well. The beauty of the protest. He did a New York times interview as he was, uh, kind of coming to national attention. And I said, well, you know, why did you, what, what are you trying to convey with your work? And he said, I want people to see the beauty of the protest. Mm. And I think that, you know, we touched on this with last words, this question of, well, can you make something beautiful when you're dealing with, with a lot of pain? And in my case, pain that isn't, you know, directly my own. And I think, I think the, you know, first of all, that's just a fact of art. There is a lot of, uh, there is a lot of beauty and sadness and sadness and beauty. You know, when you listen to the national anthem, it's a, it's a poignant thing. It raises a lot of feelings for a lot of different people. Um, and there can be beauty in it and there can be joy in it and there can be a feeling of unfulfilled promise in it. Uh, and yeah, I thought, I thought Devin's words, I wanted people to see the beauty of the protest. You know, are you going to reach people who, who see protest as, uh, as violence? I don't know. But what you, what you, will do, uh, if nothing else, as I said, with music, you can draw out their experience. I mean, the thing about an image uh, is you can look at it and then turn the page. Yeah. Um, you can you can also change the channel if, <laughs> if music comes on. But I, I hope that this kind of, uh, in its abstract way and in its um, calling up the uh, the chant uh, that will now forever live, live in Baltimore uh, in Freddie Gray's name, I hope that uh, it kind of extends for people this chance to sit with this and to think, you know, who are we? Who are we as a city? Who are we as a country? Let's listen to the beauty of the protest. Speaking with Dr. Judah Adashi Judah, this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for your talents and your guests and for joining us today. Wes, the feeling is, is very mutual. It's a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. Before we conclude this episode, I just want to leave you, as always, with a final thought. Some of the greatest social activists were people who were not politicians. They never held a public office. In some cases, they were introverts, and in most cases, they never intended to save the world. When I was in college, I did my senior thesis actually on music and music's effects on social change. 
During this research, I had the chance to travel around the world to South Africa and Cuba and Korea and, and Spain, Jamaica. And one thing that I found which was fascinating was this. You can't understand the history of South Africa and post-apartheid South Africa, the evolution out of apartheid in South Africa, without understanding the impact of Hugh Masekela and Lady Smith Block Mombazo. That you can't understand Cuba and the Cuban evolution and revolution without understanding the Buena Vista Social Club. You can't understand Jamaica and how we had a country on the cusp of a civil war, but one of the people that helped to heal the country was not a politician. It was a musician, Bob Marley. People who helped to inform and shape the history of the places they called home. And that same power we're seeing right here in Charm City. Judah Dashi, Devin Allen, Paul Rucker, Tariq Torre, Marin Alsop, Dee Watkins, Sonia Sohn, change agents and activists. People who approach their work with a passion for changing the world. Change agents aren't just born by title. They're born by talent. They aren't born by position. They're born by passion. The reason Baltimore has such an active arts activism culture is because there's a lot to say about and with this city. And our future city will be defined not just by the people who make our policies, but by those who inform them, shape them, report on them, and share them in all forms. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. The show airs the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. You can hear today's episode along with previous episodes online at wypr.org slash podcastcentral or wherever you download your podcasts. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm your host, Wes Moore. Thanks so much for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.